Hey everybody, I think we're gonna get started. Thank you so much for coming out for tonight's reading with Nicole Fleetwood and Sun Yun Shin. My name is Laura Henriksen. I'm the Director of Learning and Community Engagement here at the Poetry Project. Um, and before we get started with tonight's reading, I just wanted to update you about a few other events that are coming up at the Poetry Project. Um, we'll be back on Wednesday night in this room with Brenda Hillman and Marjorie Wellish, which will be another wonderful evening. And then next week, Wednesday, we're launching Punk Rock is Cool for the End of the World, the notebooks and poems of Ed Smith. And then Thursday night, we're having a Halloween party, Tarot Diary, um, following the late great poet and occultist Stephen Jonas. So join us for that too. But for tonight. So how we're gonna go through is, um, We'll hear from Nicole Fleetwood first. Um, I will introduce her. I'll come back up to introduce Sun Yun Shin, and then we'll hear from Sun Yun. I think for both of our readers tonight, there is a question about thresholds, by which I mean, of course, the difference between the inside and the outside, be it of prison or nation or the category of human, and how the determination is made as to who belongs on either side, but also thinking of thresholds neither as border nor as passageway but a space to live in, a space where lives are made. Thinking of the threshold, in Nicole Fleetwood's work, she explores art made in, around, and across the carceral archipelago, exploring aesthetic practices and innovations of artists with justice involvement, artists who have or are currently experiencing incarceration. I think before we go anywhere, it's worth asking, what are we doing when we're art making, tied as it is to the self-making and life-making of all small and mortal human animals? One thing is making a mark, as if to locate ourselves on a map of the world and of the history of cultural production. This is where I was when I was alive, and this is what it was like there for me. When artists like Kenneth Reams or Tamika Cole make their work, they articulate a viewpoint where there was supposed to be no view, Nothing to see, no windows, all bars, and also no point, no perspective because of the absence of subject, of creative consciousness. Not only a marking one's existence, art making is social, its existence in relation to others, participating in a conversation the length of art history, as old as expression. In her writing, Fleetwood responds to the artists making work in the space of violently enforced confinement. She acts as listener and interlocutor in this ongoing conversation, and through the seriousness of her response, refuses the additional confinement of the incarcerated artist, both inside the correctional facility and again inside the genre that is prison writing or prison art, refusing this further marginalization and dehumanizing instrumentalization of the artist with justice involvement. She instead locates this work in a much larger context, a context we all share, Prisons are meant to be silos or warehouses, removing unwanted persons from their homes, families, from the social order of the outside, attempting to hide the fact that the entire social order of the outside is built around the existence of these prisons, that they are the fabric of the world, the carceral state, and the prison nation. What happens when we understand this work not as siloed, but as a fundamental element of the contemporary art world, when we make it part of our daily living, or rather honor it that it was already there, part of our daily lives? To refuse that removal, to show that the erasure was incomplete, 
the absent figure at the family gathering is, in truth and in feeling, still there, is a deeply meaningful type of liberation, even within a space of profoundest unfreedom. Fleetwood describes the example of the prison portrait as a way to do this work. For the incarcerated loved one, having your photo taken and sending it out to your relatives is, quote, a conscious and deliberate act of staging love and affection and staying connected to relatives on the outside, end quote. And for those relatives, hanging the picture up or visiting and taking a family portrait, it's a way to touch, to be, and feel together, to refuse the social death of incarceration. It is a way to survive. Nicole Fleetwood is a writer, curator, and professor of American studies at Rutgers University. Her books are Marking Time, Art in the, End of, in the Era of Mass Incarceration, which I think the deadline for copy edits was today. Very excited, congratulations, I know. On Racial Icons, Blackness in the Public Imagination, and Troubling Vision, Performance, Visuality, and Blackness. She is co-editor of Aperture Magazine's Prison Nation, a special issue focusing on photography's role in documenting mass incarceration, and we have copies in the back. Fleetwood has co-curated exhibitions on art and mass incarceration at the Andrew Friedman Home, Aperture Foundation Galleries, Cleveland Public Library, Zimarelli Museum, and the Urban Justice Center. Her work has been supported by fellowships and awards from the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers, ACLS, Whiting Foundation, Ford Foundation, Schomburg Center for Scholars and Residents, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the NEH. Please join me in welcoming Nicole Fleetwood. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for that introduction and for inviting me. And I have to go home and finish my coffee edits. I'm going to be up all night. <laughs> um, no, I'm, at, I'm at the end note state, stage, so hopefully it won't take me too long. Um, do I have, is it, can you all see anything? Should we, uh, maybe should we dim the lights a little bit? Just, not all the way, just a little bit so you can see a bit better? Because the backdrop is black, I think. Um, and. You know, and I was delighted when Kyle um, invited me to speak at the Poetry Project. Laura had heard me talk um, in June at something at a conference in California. I'm not a poet, but I love poetry. Um, so it's like a joy to be here and also to say I'm not a poet, so don't expect poetry. Um, and so what I'm going to do is just um, share with you um, snippets from the project and just for about 20 minutes. Um, I talk more than I read, but I'll do a little bit of reading. Um, and I want to start by saying that incarceration has reshaped my family in my hometown in Southwest Ohio, and that's how I got into this project. Countless relatives have been arrested and detained. Some have been convicted and sentenced, while others have been held indefinitely and then let go. One cousin was held in a, country, a county jail for several months without ever being charged. Some of us have been profiled by police and falsely accused of crimes. Others have been convicted of serious crimes and sent sentenced to long periods in prison. The same month I, that I graduated from college, two of my closest cousins were convicted and sentenced for involvement in the death of another young man from our community. There has never been a time in my life when prison didn't hover as a real and present threat. As a young child, I recall Sunday visits with my mom to see my uncle who was locked away in a prison 30 minutes from our hometown. And then when my grandmother passed a few years ago, looking through her files, I was struck by how many times she had leveraged the modest home that she owned to bail out a relative. We lived in a mill town that had experienced the woes of factories closing. 
the unionized uh, manufacturing positions that had sustained our working class and lower middle class community for a couple of generations were no longer available. Um, so as I came up in the 80s and not early 90s, people around me, mainly young black men, but also older women and men, were being shipped off, shipped off to prisons at such frequency that their sudden disappearance and long-term absence became the norm. Boys my age who, were, who attended elementary and junior high school with me and my cousins were gone and some never to return. As, as prisons rendered more and more people in my community invisible, a spectacular visual assault on our residents a, a kind of occurred. Um, representation was an essential tool to support, to, uh, support tough on crime policies. And we know about, for example, the, the exonerated five, um, formerly called the Central Park Five. So I'm thinking about like how that also played out in local newspapers like the town I grew up in Southwest Ohio. So I began this project by thinking about a kind of counter visual narrative that was happening around the same time as we were assaulted by all these images of, and ideas about super predators. And these were works that were coming out of prison. And some of them were um, handmade greeting cards and um, visual material that was being commissioned by relatives in prison as well as when we would visit our relatives in prison. Um, and we would leave with these, these photographs, these vernacular photographs that I've written about um, quite a bit. So I started off by just literally like pulling these um, photographs out from under my bed and talking to people about them. When, whenever I was invited to give a talk, I would just pull them out and I would start sharing it around them. And from that experience, like my community has grown enormously. So everywhere I would go, people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I have a relative in prison. And, I, and they would share art. And so I've amassed this like enormous trove of art around incarceration that has come from me just going out and sharing and talking. And that experience has happened in and outside of prison. So I'm gonna read part of a chapter, um, that chapter two, which is one of my favorite chapters that also connects back to my cousin Alan. This is my cousin Alan, who at the age of 18 was sentenced um, to 15 years to life in prison. And his daughter was two months old. He, Alan is out now, thankfully, but when he was released, she was 22 years old and she was about to give birth. Um, so I met Dean Gillespie in August 2014 inside a cramped conference room in an administrative building at the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, located in Columbus, Ohio. I was there with several aunts and uncle and my cousin Cassandra. We had driven the two hours from Butler County for the parole hearing of my cousin Alan, the son of Aunt Sharon and younger brother to Cassandra. Aunt Sharon, Uncle Mike, Alan's attorney and I were scheduled to speak in support of his parole. By then, Alan was 39 years old and had spent his entire adult life in prison, having received an indefinite sentence of 15 years to life at the age of 18. After clearing the metal detectors, our family was led to a conference room by an employee of the department. We were told in explicit terms how to behave, to keep our voices low, what to do when we were called before the parole board, and when and where to go to the restroom. Then we waited. Aunt Sharon introduced us to Alan's attorney. She had hired him a few months earlier to review Alan's initial convic conviction. She had spent two decades of his incarceration supporting him in every way she could think of. Her efforts, including hiring the attorney, had led to this special parole hearing, a promising sign given that Alan had been denied parole in his previous two hearings. 
As Sharon and the attorney went over expected proceedings, in walked a tall, white, burly man. I assumed that he had worked for the department and had come to deliver some information. A couple of us stared at him in this distant formality that we reserve for white people who think they have authority over black lives. But then Aunt Sharon burst into laughter and screamed, you made it. This was Dean Gillespie, not an officer or employee of the state, but a formerly incarcerated person and a friend of Allen who had come to support our family. I might come back to some of these. Is this going to? Okay. Hello. Okay, that's one of Dean's work. Um, Alan and Dean had spent 12 years together, first at Warren and then later at London. Both, uh, both um, state prisons in Ohio. Gillespie had been in prison two years prior to Allen and was one of the first people he had met. He was from a rural working class white community about 90 minutes away from where we grew up. Knowing of the racial tensions and segregation that existed in many prisons, especially in Ohio, I was curious about how they became friends. I asked them about it and neither of them would offer details. They just say things like, he's a good guy or he's a trustworthy dude. Gillespie adds, ghetto is all heart. Ghetto, Allen Street, and prison name is not what our family calls him. Neither is Henry his birth name, which appears on all his prison documents. Not only had the two men become good friends, but their families had gotten to know each other. And, Alan, and Aunt Sharon had visited Gillespie's family um, several times since his release in 2012. I would later learn that Gillespie was involved in a high-profile case of wrongful conviction. He had spent 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, for crimes, several crimes he didn't commit. And he had turned his prison sentence into um, a practice of procuring or taking material from the state to, to create art. And so what I learned through him is this idea of procurement, which is basically he would create relationships across all these racial and ethnic differences and have people help him acquire art supplies um, in the service of making art. And he also um, rationalized that for every year of his life that was taken by the state, he would use that time and turn it into art production. And so all of these um, miniatures that are like sought after now. He's had all, like, all kinds of national folk museums and outside art museums um, try to acquire this collection. When he was released from prison um, 20 years later, his parents' garage was literally filled with all of these miniatures that he had um, made over that period of time. And I use his story and the story of him and Alan to talk about how art making in prison, this is one of his favorites because he was, it's also electrified, he was able to bring it in like wiring and, um, and so his projects got bigger and bigger, he would hide them under his bed, he would you know, find all these kind of ways, orchestrate all these ways to hide these projects that he was creating. Um, during his time in prison. But I use it to talk about like how art making inside prison is about uh, like expressive capacity. It is about a type of aesthetic discernment, about doing something that is completely ant antithesis of being unfree, right? Unfree is about not having choice, not being able, you know. And so art making really is just like 
foundational way that incarcerated people resist captivity, but it's also an amazing way in which they create a type of a relationality with other incarcerated people. They also create that kind of relationality with uh, non-incarcerated publics. Many of them start collaborating on art projects um, outside of prison. And I look at um, a collective that takes place. Um, they're all out, that, but they were in, it was a multiracial collective in a prison here we go. In a prison in um, um, New Jersey called Ferriton. And it consisted of an artist named Jesse Crimes, um, uh, who's white, and um, Gilberto Rivera, who's Puerto Rican, Ameri Puerto Rican and then um, Jared Owens, who's African American. And they turned this very small art uh, workshop into a prison study group. They were reading like George Jackson and Foucault and, and they also were using it to challenge each other um, uh, to become better artists. And so I, I, instead of reading, I'm just gonna show you some of the work that they, they did. So this is a three year work by um, um, Jesse Crimes that were on, it's on 39 prison bed sheets. Um, he had no idea what it would look like until he was released from prison. And all he knew was to use the, his desk as a horizon. So, for, so every bed sheet he would line up on his desk. So he knew that at least when, once he was released that they would, they would uh, measure up. And so he was inspired by um, Dante and he was also reading Giorgio Agamben and he was thinking about um, issues of social death but also think, uh, thinking about valuation. So he has these three, three tiers of kind of valuation that are taking place. And he also, um, you can't see it because uh, it's, you know, because it's a, a white shot. This is um, an installation of that same, his bed sheets at the Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site in, in Philadelphia. It's a, it was permanently installed. Mm -hmm. But he also uses um, mug shots um, and, and, and he transfers them in. So the way that he made these, um, this, this amazing mural is through um, transferring images from the New York Times and from magazines onto the bed sheets. And he would use um, hair gel and um, toothpaste as transfer media and a spoon. And he would like literally just spend hours transferring. Um, so he was appropriating um, existing images. And then he, on top of that, would draw. And he had like color pencils. And he saw some of the, the, these, for, this is for example, a drawing. And he has these gigantic um, models who are like, basically terrorizing the earth, thinking about value systems and commercialism. Um, here's the detail from that. And then Gilberto, um, who um, grew up in Brooklyn and was a graffiti artist and um, got tagged as a gang member very early on. And so he spent his 18 years in prison um, experiencing something called diesel therapy. And diesel therapy is when um, you're put on a bus, a Department of Corrections, and you're driven sometimes for days. You don't, they don't know where, you don't know where you're gonna go, and then they just drop you off in another prison. And they often do that to people who have affiliations, political, any kind of affiliation that the state wants to squash. So they send you to different prisons so that you can never attach. But he used that experience actually to gain new, um, um, artist techniques. So he, everywhere he'd go, he'd just study whatever the people were doing there. Um, his last stint, he ended up incarcerated with um, Jesse Crimes and Jared, 
and, Jer and Jesse was really pushing him to do more conceptual work. He kept getting, every time he'd do conceptual work, he'd get tagged by the color, because of the colors he was using, so he would get thrown in a hole. They'd say, oh, that's a gang symbol. So what he did is he takes his um, prison uniform and he turns it into this um, mixed media collage that's called Institutional Nightmare that he then dedicates to um, his, um, the, uh, his members of his collective. Um, Jared Owens, is, who's also a part of that collective, he, what he did is he spent his time with um, Jesse and Gilberto wanting to um, expand his um, color palette and also become an abstract expressionist, which he said is very hard to do in a prison because there's a limit on what kind of color you can acquire. Like you can't acquire color that has, usually that has metal or like you can't get a vibrant red because you can't have cadmium. There's all these kind of um, stipulations about what type of material you can access. So he would bring in soil uh, like uh, from the prison yard and mix it into paint. He would find all these kind of ways of innovating around painting. Um, and he also wanted to expand the size of his um, work. He said that he had very small, small um, canvases in the prison workshop. So um, my, like for me, the most kind of powerful quote in the book is he said, Jared said to me, that was the longest three yards of my life. He saw a wood plank outside of the art workshop. In order for him to acquire it, he would have to like avoid guards. If he was caught, he would have been thrown in a hole. And so thinking about that level of risk taking for the service of art making really inspired me. He said that to me like in 2014 and it really propelled me um, to, to move forward with this project. This here is called Elapsium, and it's not the greatest um, um, photograph of it, but it's a triptych that he did where he took the blueprint of Ferriton Prison, where he was incarcerated, and lined it up with the Brooks slave ship, which is the iconic image from 1788 that, of, that was used in abolitionism. And so he lines up the holding cells, and then he incorporates uh, where you see these brown spots. These, this is the prison soil. And for him, the colors are also deeply symbolic. This is something I would not have known had I not interviewed like 80 artists. So the project has been like a nine-year project of me interviewing a lot of currently and formerly incarcerated artists, some who are still in prison, a couple of them on death row. So it's just a range of artists. And he said that orange is a stress color. So in ferritin, orange, any orange color means um, incarcerated people are prohibited. So he says to cross into orange is basically, you know, you could be, one could be killed. And for him, even now that he's out of prison, still seeing orange, he said it's this color that brings, causes, causes him a lot of stress. Um, so he incorporates that in as this kind of sign of, of, of foreboding. Um, then I have a chapter that looks at um, portraiture. So the most common type of art making, the kind of most common genre in prison is portraiture. The most common kind of media is graphite. So just any piece of paper and, and drawing. Um, uh, and I look at a, a several different um, portrait artists. This is Russell Craig, who um, was from, from, from the age of five on, was tethered to the carceral state. He was. A, foster care, a, a child of foster care who ends up in group homes, who ends up in state prisons, and, you know, and, um, and this is his life until he's in his early 30s. He's out now. Um, he learns how to read when he's in prison, and he said even 
like finding the word art in department was like this kind of revelation for him. And, um, it's one of his first self-portraits where he takes his criminal index, which is his prison ID photo, and turns it into this, this large-scale work of art. And this is quite large, actually. It's about four feet wide. Um, he has gone on to make other portraits, so he's out now and he's still thinking about the criminalization of black people and black uh, bodies. And so this is um, a large um, portrait that he made thinking about the criminalization of, of black hair. And you know, there are laws right now that are, that are being proposed about you know, um, protecting ha hair as a protective category. Um, and he's also interested, in his portraits, he's interested in kind of mixed media work. And so he, these, um, Dreads are actually sculptural objects that from hair he's collected um, from hair salons um, all across Philadelphia. And so they actually come off of the canvas. Um, he also um, learned how to make art through mentorship. So the way that most people make, learn how to make art in prison is through peer mentoring. It's a really vibrant peer mentoring community. And his mentor was a guy named James Hoff who at the age of 17 was sentenced to life without parole. And James um, has spent all his time in prison just mentoring younger artists coming up. This is James' self-portrait. It's called Portrait of Yaya. And it was because um, Shepard Ferry came and gave an artist talk in his prison. And he was really inspired by it. So he's using the kind of style of, um, of Shepard Ferry here. Um, and I sh I'm happy to say that James was released from prison two months ago after 27 years in prison. Um, and he's, he and I are going to, James, um, Russell and I are doing a talk next Wednesday at the African American Art Museum in Philadelphia together. And it's going to be James' first public presentation. Um, I also, and I look at a range of art, like my, my, my um, concern is not to like, um, the quote to, to, to obsess about the level of artistry, but to think about a range of kind of art making and practices. But I do look at artists who have done quite well, like George Anthony Morton, who's, who uh, was sentenced to prison, the federal prison when he was like 19 for 10 years for like nonviolent drug offense. And he, and he was so angry and so upset. And he said, he just like said, I'm going to turn this into like art school. He's like, this is the time when everyone, so he just became an obsessive, obsessive portrait artist. And then 10 years later, he gets out like right before his 30th birthday, and he gets accepted to the Florence Academy of Art. Um, there's a documentary being made about him. This is one of his, uh, a portrait he made in 2016 that was, he was given the best portrait award for, by the Florence Academy of Art. He's one of the only American artists to also be accepted to the Florence Academy in Florence, not just the one in New Jersey. Um, and so there are, you know, many successes that are coming out of that, but the story is not, about art being like kind of the aspirational journey of art. You know, I have a chapter. Um, this is Russell, one of Russell Craig's self-portraits and it's about eight feet tall. And it's, um, I call it on his Carso biography because it's on, he, after he was released, he went around to all these different state offices and collected all of his prison documents. And he amasses them and then he uses them as the backdrop for this like enormous um, self-portrait. I, I do, but I want to say it's, it is not a, just an aspirational story. Like I have a chapter that's on solitary confinement, um, and it opens with um, this artist who makes a really exquisite but haunting self-portrait, and then he kills himself. 
Um, and I um, spent a lot of time on this artist, Ojuri Lutalo, who was a part of the Black Liberation Army um, and was held in solitary confinement for 22 years, not for a disciplinary measure, but for administrative. And what that means is that, again, people with radical ideas, radical political thoughts are often kept in severe isolation because um, the prison is so afraid that they will quote, radicalize or share knowledge with the general population. And he had, uh, people in solitary confinement have very limited resources. Um, they don't have the art supplies that um, like Jared and um, Gilberto and Jesse had access to. So they have to have, uh, for legal reasons, they get access to their legal documents because they are entitled to um, advocate on, be on their behalf. So he would use his legal documents to make these collages. And the collages were a way of documenting his um, experience um, at, in solitary confinement as a political prisoner. Um, this is where he's uh, written a pill asking to be relieved and where the Department of Corrections for the state of New Jersey is saying, actually, yeah, we are holding you because of your political beliefs. We're holding you. you know. And so um, this goes on until he, I think he's placed in in 86. He doesn't get released in two, until 2009. He has no idea how long he'll be um, held in that state. And, it's partly through making contact with the American Friends Service Committee, the Prison Watch organization. Um, they start monitoring his case and he's eventually released. Uh, and this is another one of his collages that he made um, using um, newsprint and again, his own criminal index. Um, all of his um, collages will have his uh, prison address on it because it was a way that he could maintain like community even though he was, um, for many years he couldn't even um, exercise at the same time as other um, incarcerated people who was held in like one of the most severe states of isolation. Um, I'm going to stop right there because I think I'm 20 minutes are over, but thank you for allowing me to share. Um, I collaborated with um, Aperture on um, a special issue of a magazine um, called Prison Nation where it's looking at photography's role in documenting mass incarceration and then um, my book, Marking Time, where you, much of this work is in it, um, is coming out in the spring of 2020, and I'm going to be doing um, a lot of public events around that in New York and, and elsewhere. So, thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole. I am truly so excited for that book. Please keep us posted on your other public events in New York. Um, wonderful. Sun Yun Shin's Unbearable Splendor is an uncanny book. Familiar and unsettling, unfamiliar as returning home when you've never had one, when you're a cyborg or a ghost. One animating question of the book has to do with the work of the host performing that work or refusing to do so, welcoming the stranger or turning her away. Who will be abandoned, the book asks. Who will have to wait like the dead? Who will have to show their papers? And who will have no papers to show? And who will be the one to check? What happens when the orphan is adopted to territory, space, and time? What happens to the adoptee? What name should I call you by, quote, my sister of unbearable splendor, end quote? unkinned, adrift, all doors. Another question is about the stranger within, the second body, the bones under the flesh, the self in the future, the clones and replicants. Quote, 
the world under this world that outnumbers this world, end quote. In the sixth sphere of paradise, she writes, quote, we are guests above the ground, end quote, pointing to the underground from which we came and to which we will return. And then, quote, impure, you cannot escape me now because I am inside you, end quote, incorporated like a disease or reborn like the cured. She closes paradise in Empyrean, the highest heaven, Greek for in or on the fire, writing, quote, inside me, a second, better person, furnished with perfect recall, my convict, my warden, my guest, my host, end quote. However strict boundaries may be enforced, they only betray the interdependence between the actors, their features, the moving bodies of heaven, always already alloyed. Quote, if there is a door between us, you cannot say who I am, end quote. She writes in My Singularity, we are at the door. We are reaching out towards it. Sun Yun Shin is the author of poetry essay collections Unbearable Splendor, which we have in the back, Rough and Savage and Skirt Full of Black. She is the editor of A Good Time for Truth, Race in Minnesota, and co-editor of Outsiders Within, writing on transracial adoption. Her bilingual Korean and English illustrated children's book is Cooper's Lesson. She is the co-director of Poetry Asylum and also an emerging healing practitioner. She lives in Minneapolis. Please join me in welcoming Sun Yun Shin. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Poetry Project. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Nicole, and all my friends who came here. You guys are amazing. Um, so, a lot of what I write about ostensibly seems to be about missing people, but I think um, at, its, at its essence, it's really about purity and impurity. So my writing practice um, all comes from having been born in South Korea and being a Korean, an intercountry Korean adoptee and a naturalized citizen and the history of um, the expulsion, like the laundering and expulsion of these Korean citizens from what is now the 11th largest economy in the world, South Korea. It also has the second or the first highest rate of suicide. And suicide's not a traditional Korean like honor practice. It's, this is a contemporary problem of the last 20 years. Um, it also now has the lowest fertility rate in the world, although it's still sending children um, out of its country. So the thing is, back to, um, back to the expulsion. So Korean adoption as a practice, which really all then intercountry adoption has been modeled on this kind of as best practice South Korean adoption program, started in 1953. Um, at the end of the, at the cessation of hostilities, active hostilities, the Korean War still going on, the Civil War, um, when an American farmer who kind of turned into a missionary came to South Korea to Christianize and saw these children on the street who were biracial. So these were mostly the children of black American GIs and Korean women, and they, there was no place for any kind of mixed race child. 
Um, and also, if you were born of a Korean woman at that time, but the father was not a Korean citizen, that child was stateless if they weren't claimed by their US citizen father, which in most cases they weren't. So the, um, this farmer, Harry Holt from Oregon, initiated this program of bringing those children to the United States as a humanitarian and charity um, effort and as part of, you know, he had a vision from God that this was part of his mission. And so this, um, my, my path as a US citizen has come from this original Christianized ethnic cleansing of children of black Americans and Korean women. And then, they be, and then Korean women, um, offspring of Korean women and all kinds of American soldiers, GIs. Um, and so the idea of purity in, in Korean society uh, and who can be a citizen, who needs to be expelled, um, and what, who can be erased, what the nation can withstand and contain, and who does not have a future as a citizen of the state. Alongside, with, alongside North Korea, which is an open-air prison state, um, and, you know, partitioned for 75 plus years. Um, for me, the language, writing in this language, this, the language of, of an occupier is always politically fraught, right? Um, so Poetry Asylum, which I co-direct with my artistic partner, Su Huang, who's also a Korean immigrant. Um, she came to the New York area with her family when she was eight. Um, her new book, which she was supposed to be here, but I'm her stunt double, so I'm really grateful that she's on tour in California right, right now. Her new book, Bodega, from Milkweed Press, is really fantastic. I want to recommend that. Um, so Poetry Asylum is just a, we're not a nonprofit, we're just a concern. We're just a, um, um, you know, actions. Just like fascism is just a set of behaviors. It's not an ideology, like we're just a set of actions, really. And um, my, my tether to Nicole, which is so delightful to learn, um, is, I just wanna tell you a little bit about um, one, of our, one of our things last year that we did in Poetry Asylum. So Poetry Asylum, our three commitments are um, all language is political, poetry is a human right, and no one is illegal. So last year on the anniversary of the 1971 Attica prison uprising, it was also I think the eighth day of the national prison strike, mm -hmm. um, we partnered with PEN America, um, Kyle's former boo, and um, <laughs> the Wiseman Museum, at, which is in part of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities system. So it's called, and also with Motion Poems, which is an, an organization that makes pairs directors and poets to make poetry films. So um, that film that we, we showed was Cell Watch, Strip Cell, that was pre-released at our show um, at PEN America's Breakout at the Wiseman Museum Poetry Asylum, uh, September 9th. So I'm just gonna read because I wanna shout out to these folks who were involved and then I'll read some poetry, I guess, at the Poetry Project. Um, so Sunday, September 9th, Minneapolis-based Poetry Asylum and the Wiseman Art Museum are teaming up with PEN America to present Breakout, Voices from in the Inside, as part of a nationwide activation in commemoration of the 1971 Attica prison uprising. 
honoring the struggle for free expression in prison and underscoring the importance of writing as an act of creative resistance and triumph. In concert with artist Daniel McCarthy Clifford, who's in Nicole's book, um, quote, section of disapproved books project at the Wiseman Art Museum, Poetry Asylum is teaming up, blah, 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 to host a three-pronged event. We're bringing marginalized voices affected personally and or culturally by mass incarceration, activists and scholars into the historically white space of an art museum. This event seeks to disrupt traditional privileged contexts while generating critical dialogue around futurism, abolition, and art as a catalyst to healing justice and peace. Uh, two panels will feature 10 distinguished local members of All Square, Minnesota Prison Doula Project, Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, Unprison Project, Voices for Racial Justice, and We Are All Criminals. Um, then a special pre-release of Cell Watch Strip Cell, motion poem by filmmaker Jane Morlidge and poet Susanna Nevison will be capped off with the Penn Prison and Justice Program's poetry reading from seven notable poets to celebrate and amplify the voices of incarcerated writers by connecting their work with the public. And Daniel McCarthy Clifford's uh, project, Section of Disapproved Books, in which he gathered disapproved um, banned books from prisons and jails across the country was in the space where we were holding our uh, day-long event. And what was really incredible, many incredible things about it, and he also spoke on a panel, um, was that they were organized by color. So you might have Toni Morrison's beloved right next to um, you know, How to Wire a Motherboard book. Right, so all it just—it was incredible. It was an incredible project of proximity and adjacency, and the power of language. Right, um, so that was really a privilege and a joy and um, a learning experience to put that. So that's the kind of thing that Poetry Asylum is trying to do whenever we can. We also like to bring in um, or just jump onto other poets, uh, mostly poets of color. Um, when they're touring through Minneapolis and then join them with, with local poets and bringing local and national voices together. So we're, our website's thisispoetryasylum.com. Um, so that's what we're doing at Poetry Asylum. Um, the other thing about you know my, my work with race in Minnesota, I grew up in a Chicago suburb and my, my informal education around race and belonging, citizenship, intimacy, and all those things um, was really informed by my adoptive family's European-American um, culture and the kind of ethnic, white ethnic enclaves in Chicago that, that were very strong while I was growing up there. And then when I eventually moved to Minnesota, um, I was really overwhelmed by the taboo about race, about the absence of people of color in any kinds of authority figures. Um, Minnesota is often in the, the Washington Post for its spectacular racism. It's one of the most racist states, if not the most racist state structurally in, in the nation. Um, it also has the largest urban native population. Minneapolis was the home of the uh, American Indian movement. But so it's got the, the largest wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans in the country the worst outcomes for, the worst school outcomes for children of color in the country, the worst homeowner rates, um, and, you know, so there's, there's a lot of work being done now or ongoing on um, things like redlining and coven, racial covenants and all of these things that have 
been part of white Minnesota's denial of any kind of white supremacy. So it's, it's both difficult and discouraging, but also exciting to see some actual, some actual change in my um, adopted home state. Um, so one of the things, a couple things that I'm gonna read from tonight, which I was like, oh, I should have brought a slideshow because there's, there's a lot of visual information that makes the poems seem even weirder being read without them. Um, but this idea of social death and the adoptee and cleansing and um, erasure is something that's always a part of my work and I'm often trying to figure out what are the visual, either primary documents or um, visual ways of thinking, visual modeling to kind of capture that. And, um, you know, Korean adoption is still happening. So I have a Korean adoptee cousin who's a few years younger and she has Crohn's disease. And so I think she was told that she shouldn't um, try to have children uh, with her own uterus. And um, so she just adopted a two-year-old girl from Korea, possibly with some kinds of um, developmental challenges. So the, the way that the Korean adoption has, has slowed to, maybe not a trickle, but through activism to try to stop intercountry adoption and promote domestic adoption or really just reproductive justice for women and children. But so what this, the situation now is that it's really just um, like reproductive, re, reproductive children who are considered like rejects, like they have some kind of disability and, and they're not absorbable into, or supportable into South Korean society. And so they're sent to um, the United States and other places, other white countries. Um, so it's ongoing, it's, it's sadly not over. Okay, so poetry, poetry, poetry. Um, yeah, so the, to read um, a poem from, I'll read a poem from A New Thing and then maybe from Unbearable Splendor. So a new, a new project um, that I'm calling The Night Garden, I guess the next manuscript, maybe coming out in 2021 from Coffee House. The beginning so far, the first epigraph is from Donna Haraway's um, essay, Tentacular Thinking, Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Cthulhu-Scene, which came out in EFLUX, Journal 75. So, you know, thinking about these, yeah, kinds of ways of thinking about the future or just collapse of time and everything we're dealing with. Um, so she writes, the unfinished Cthulhu scene must collect up the trash of the Anthropocene, the exterminism of the Capitalocene, and chipping and shredding and layering like a mad gardener make a much hotter compost pile for still possible pasts, presents, and futures. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead to, so this poem, it came out in Bomb like last year maybe, and I'm gonna show you. It's, it's using my Korean passport, my original Korean passport. And so there it is, you can see it. And then I have, it's a, um, what do you call it? I've got sample, sample language. And then here's the inside of the passport. Um, and so the passport as a document, you know, a life or death, like a book. It's a book that, that is a life or death 
document for many people on the planet, especially right now. Um, I think in 1990, there were maybe three national borders on the planet, walls or armed borders, and now there's almost 70. So for me, as part of um, my homeland being partitioned, this issue of borders and walls is, um, and language is very salient. So the left side of the poem is from Ovid's Metamorphoses and the, um, from book two of Mortal Children. So God's raping mortal women basically and having children, the woman having children, um, translated by Charles Martin. And then the, um, the text on the right side of the poem and the first, yeah, the first half of the title of the poem also. Ugh, so difficult being a weirdo. Um, <laughs> It's from Columbus's four, The Four Voyages, 1492 to 1504 by Lawrence Burgreen. Okay, so it's like Columbus on the right and um, Metamorphoses on the left. So, okay, so it's called Castaways in Paradise and then the, that's from the Columbus and then on the, the title, the second half of the title is called Passing Through colon, none, which is from my Korean passport, like I'm not passing through any other countries and I was sent right to the United States. Um, all right, on the left, I'll just read left to right. What brings you here, he asked. What do you seek in this high tower, Phaethon? You, an heir no parent would deny. They saw tracks of animals, goats, the men assumed, but actually deer, but found the corpse of only one. Like so much else in the other world, they knew not what to make of the sight. The father put aside his shining crown and told him to draw nearer and took him in his arms. It would not be appropriate for me to disavow our relationship. Consumed by the idea of this small child alone in the wilderness, they, found, they allegedly found this child in a hut. Columbus intervened, pledging the boy to God and fortune. How often she would be too terrified to lie down by herself in the deep woods and wander to the fields near her old home. Often she hid herself at the sight of beasts, forgetting that she was a beast herself. And the bear was frightened by the sight of bears up in the mountains and afraid of wolves, although her father had been changed to one. Columbus assumed that the object, quote, must be those of some ancestors of the family because those houses were of a kind where many persons live in one, and they should be relations descended from only one. To keep her from successfully appealing to Jupiter, her speech was snatched away, only a growl from deep within her chest, a rumble, hoarse and menacing, remained. A pile of bare human bones testified to their predilection. All that could be gnawed on had been gnawed on, and all that was left, well, was what could not be eaten because it was inedible. So Columbus thinks he's found these cannibals and this cannibal child in the hut and gives him to God. Um, I'll read this short little other weirdo. Um, I started looking at the lottery, thinking about, you know, thinking about, I'm always thinking about the arbitrariness of my existence. I could have been a French adoptee, I could have gone to Canada, I could have gone to Australia, Germany, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, uh, 
Austria, yeah. So there's, there's, there's our little diaspora of like 200,000 or so Korean citizens um, laundered into these other countries. So the, the, I was looking at the history of the lottery in general. So the Loterie Royale, um, the word lottery may come from the Latin lot, meaning fate or destiny, or from the Galois, lo, meaning a piece of money. So a little quote from the Histoire de Loterie. In the 18th century, it is the religious lotteries authorized by the royal power, which arrive in force to allow several religious orders to survive, especially to finance the construction as well as repair of many buildings they own. So it's a church pyramid scheme. It also just personally, you know, um, my dad used to send me when I was a, a kid to the corner store to buy cigarettes and lottery tickets, and um, that's a semi-fond childhood memory. So this poem, it's like, oh, how clever. It's in the shape of something. I don't know. But um, it's like, it goes forward and goes backwards. Um, so it's called Unnatural Selection. Originally, this manuscript was supposed to kind of be about racial gender politics of faux science, evolutionary biology, and I had all this Darwin stuff, and then, then um, he's kind of leaving it a little bit, but so unnatural selection. And there we came upon a child lottery, one stutter of brides, water, water everywhere, religious feeling, a cape within, monk underground, chthonic low rise, descend, count us all, my number, the registry, Game of chance, a first draw, a desperate gamble. Here, king, I, I, king, here, gamble, a desperate, draw first, a chance of game. Register the number, my all, us count descend. Low rise, chronic, underground. Monk within cape, a feeling, religious everywhere, water. Water brides, stutter, one lottery, child upon, came we there. And um, maybe that will be maybe that will be it from that project. Um, so from Unbearable Splendor, I'll just read one thing, maybe. Um, so this book is a lot about you know monsters, monstrosity, metamorphoses. Um, labyrinths, Blade Runner, a um, little bit about third-party reproduction and just other kinds of super fun, whimsical things. Um, so in 2014, the Washington Post reported um, a computer just passed the Turing test in landmark trial, uh, written by Terrence McCoy. So the epigraph to this section is, this go-round a Russian-made program which disguised itself as a 13-year-old boy named Eugene Gustman from Odessa, Ukraine, bamboozled 33% of human questioners. Eugene was one of the five supercomputers who entered the 2014 Turing test. So I guess it was the first time a computer passed the Turing test and convinced um, a lot of people that he was a human. So this is a little prosy poem. Everything's super long in this book, I'm sorry, but you get a lot of words for your money. 
Um, that's all I can say. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so I'll read this and then we'll I'll adjourn. Um, so the the, ep, the epigraph to the poem itself is from Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio, which is very this is a very spectral text. Um, would be great for Halloween. So this this uh, poem thing is called My Singularity. So the beginning is some dialogue between Pinocchio and four black rabbits. Like this is the most chilling thing I've read in my life. Um, are you not afraid of death? I am not in the least afraid. I would rather die than drink that bitter medicine. At that moment, the door of the room flew open and four rabbits as black as ink entered, carrying on their shoulders a little beer. What do you want with me, cried Pinocchio, sitting up in bed in a great fright. We are coming to take you, said the biggest rabbit. Um, all right. I am known to be ungrateful. I am points that will eventually meet in space. I am singular, but there are more of me. And then think of these like little asterisks, you know, if you're a type, if you're a type nerd, I'm not even really a type nerd, just anything that comes across um, that seems nerdy, of course, I'll like it. So the asterisk, you know, is the, is the typographical symbol for um, absence, actually. An aster means star and blah, blah, blah. So these, these little, I'm interested in these little triangles of stars. Hurling toward my milestone, I'm failing the human test and passing the machine test. I'm like the 13-year-old boy program. I am also from Odessa. My name is Eugene. My genes are perfect because they don't exist. I am not made to reproduce. I have nothing to pass on. I am not fit to survive. I am designed to disguise and deceive. I dissemble and perform. 33% of me is convincing in the dark, without my body, without my voice. When I was uh, nothing but light, traveling at my own speed toward the planet, I had no past. I had no body to destroy, no mind to control. I had no mouth with which to utter lies, no eyes to cry, no hands to bind, and no spaces inside me to be filled or left hollow. Before there were computers, there were wooden machines. I think also my, my adoptive mother worked at IBM um, on the punch card machines that were the same that were used by the um, Nazi regime. Heat, seed, break a birth, bark, an upward bound tree, wood, the, the woodcutter's wood long saw and jagged teeth, and then thick bolts of wood, some leftovers, my cradle, my drib, my body. There is never a need for a wooden baby. A wooden baby you cannot put to the breast for it will give your mother splinters and tears. Its rough, blank face will only scratch. I could not sleep and I could not scream and I could not see until the woodcarver gave me eyes, then the rest of me working his way down to the feet, which were really just shoes. My skin soaked up the paint eagerly. He had to apply, dry, and apply more. For many days it went on like this with my dry body absorbing all the red, blue, black, yellow, green, white paint into some hidden rooms, cells, passages, almost as if they went inward and inward and through some door that opened to a curious series of houses all connected, all underground. Until one day, I was full, and the paint rested lightly on the surface of my face, my hat that I could never take off, and in between the joints of my fingers and elbows and knees. Some articulations were utterly silent, secret, naked. I never needed to grow in my mother's womb, what is a mother good for, and scrape out her inner bowl like a big wooden spoon. 
I don't need a mother, and I don't have a mother. I would have destroyed her from the inside out, since she was not made of wood. I dream about my future self. I am made of some kind of metal, very light, very white, very thin. I run my smooth fingertips all over my body, but I cannot feel any seams or joints. But I can feel various different machines seemingly unrelated in different places inside of me. Some are filament thin and shaped like wishbones. Others are heavy and made of bolts. Others are pure electricity and throw off some kind of faint hum that fades into white noise as it travels away from its source. Sometimes in these nighttime travels, I am walking upstairs that lead nowhere, or I must lead a group of travelers through a tiny passageway, knowing that we will not all make it through. I might be the first to get stuck. I might suffocate. I can't move forward or backwards, and yet I have to start maneuvering my body into that space. Something is behind us. Perhaps the stairs have disappeared while we assess the small opening. I am here to solve your problems. I am here and I am your problem. Your problem is that I am. In the evening after his regular work was done and the cuckoo birds in their clock houses were quiet, tiny black eyes opened. The woodworker would sometimes be seized by a vision and would take out one tool or another to set to work upon some part of me. During the day he worked like a machine and I sat in my corner watching him. I contemplated my own limited intelligence a rather short maze that ended in the same place. There was only one way to win. Paths did not fork away, multiply, double back, or dead end. Inside the maze, nothing grew but time. Running away often seems like a good idea. There must be a million other galaxies, universes, houses, gardens, alleys, jails, oceans, graveyards, houses of worship, brothels, wedding halls, opera houses, dojos, boxing rings, diamond markets, coal mines, one-room schoolhouses, garment factories, libraries, convents, orphanages, vacation homes, hospitals, wildlife preserves, courts of law, dot, dot, dot. I went to the circus, and I went to the amusement park, and my woodworking father trailing behind me at every turn, whipped and beaten, set on fire, and scarred with strange tools resembling the legs of insects, measured and pierced as if I were not hard painted wood, but shoe leather, trimmed and sewed, slapped onto the ground, oneself in front of the next. One, two, I was ahead of me and behind me. I was lost, I fled, I purchased the air. Down into the ocean through story after story of water, darker as I became heavy as lead. There was my father in the belly of the whale among the other shipwrecks. We swam and swam and we wearied. But where is that blessed shore, asked the little old man, much more worried and more and more worried as he tried to pierce the faraway shadows. I am searching everywhere and I see nothing but sky and sea. If there is a door between us, you cannot say what I am. You cannot say that I am pure or impure. You can ask questions that only a human would know and those that only a marionette would know. When wounded, when punished, when scorned and rejected, like a block of wood, the other blocks of wood cry out as I once did. Now like children who want to live long enough to become adults, some of whom are in peril of living and dying as children, I know better than to make a sound. Thank you so much for listening.
Thank you so much, Sanyan. That was astonishing. I'm so excited about this book coming out in 2021. And thank you, Nicole. That was really such a great night. Thank you all so much for being here. I'll see you at the Poetry Project again soon. Good night. <laughs>